Well, welcome everyone. Um, thank you for braving this very cold night to come and hear me speak. Uh, my name is James Claxton. I'm Professor of Comparative Philology in the University of Cambridge. Um, and I'm going to be talking tonight about um, migration and language. Uh, the way this talk is going to be uh, structured is I'm going to say a little bit at the beginning about some of the recent anxieties about migration and language and, and what might happen to the English language. And then I'm going to talk about some ancient case studies, uh, particularly looking at what happened to Latin um, under the influence of migration. And, you know, wondering whether that can actually suggest to us uh, what the future of English is going to be like. So uh, what effect migration will have on the English language. Now I'm going to start off with uh, um, uh, an all too familiar face, uh, <coughs> Nigel Farage, um, who in recent um, years, I mean pre preceding the whole referendum and Brexit debate, um, has been talking about the effects of migration on the society, uh, on our society, and also talking about the effects on language. So um, I'm taking from a particular speech, a famous speech he gave a couple of years ago in Torquay, uh, where he talked about the effect of migration on English society, and particularly on the effect on uh, English being spoken. So in the middle here he says, uh, many parts of, Engli of England, you don't hear English spoken anymore, not the kind of community we want to live in, or to leave to our children and grandchildren. Um, and then he made um, a famous remark about hearing foreign languages on a train. Uh, he said it was a stopping train going out of London, and you know, we only got so far when, um, before I could actually hear English being audibly spoken in the carriage. Um, and he said, you know, that makes me feel awkward. You know, that in my own country, I don't feel here a language which I understand being spoken. Uh, now there's a famous um, case which came up this year, which is an interesting riposte to that um, awkwardness that Nigel Farage feels about <coughs> not hearing English spoken on a train. Um, and this is a story which was widely reported um, about a Muslim woman um, who was uh, accused um, by a man on the bus uh, for speaking a foreign language and told um, she should speak English. Uh, now the story as related um, originally in, in um, uh, a Facebook post uh, says this, this woman was wearing a full veil and was speaking a, a foreign language. Uh, a man told her, you're in the UK now, you should be speaking English. When another passenger piped up and said, we're in Wales and she's speaking Welsh. So uh, she wasn't speaking Arabic or um, Urdu or anything like that. She was speaking Welsh. Uh, this is a great story, and I wish it was true, but uh, unfortunately it's not true. You see, um, it's a kind of um, uh, a modern myth, uh, uh, urban legend. Uh, you see the same variety um, set in America with someone uh, told off for supposedly speaking Spanish when they're actually talking Navajo, uh, native in, um, American Indian language. Uh, so unfortunately that, um, that story isn't true, but it, it is a reminder that you know, in the UK there are languages which probably most of us in this room can't understand, which are native to the UK, have been spoken in the UK for as long if not longer than the English language, for example Welsh, um, and other um, Celtic languages such as Scots, Gaelic, uh, Cornish, Manx. Although you'd be very lucky to hear Manx, I think, being spoken on a train. Uh, this also reminds us um, that, you know, although this is a, an urban legend, there are, um, unfortunately, people are increasingly being um, uh, threatened or upbraided in the street when speaking in a foreign language or um, even speaking in a foreign accent. Um, uh, my wife, who is not a native English speaker, um, uh, on Jesus Green in Cambridge um, a couple of months ago, uh, we were accosted by someone who told my wife to go back where she came from because she was speaking English with a foreign accent. So, you know, these microaggressions are taking place all over um, England at the moment. And, you know, there are stories of even worse things going on. I mean, this is a, a, a story... Uh, recently of someone who was actually um, 
uh, killed in a suspected race hate crime, uh, supposedly because he was heard to speak English. Uh, sorry, not speaking English, to speak Polish. Um, so we might ask, you know, why is there this um, kind of fear or unhappiness or uh, aggression towards people um, not speaking English? Uh, well, I think there's some of the kind of awkwardness people feel about it is certainly to, because they feel excluded, they feel they can't understand, they feel left out. Um, some others is, is a more kind of subtle, insidious um, uh, awkwardness. And I think this is best expressed recently by, um, well, in the last five years, by uh, the historian David Starkey, um, who made famous comments in a, in a Newsnight interview uh, where he also brought race into it, but he was saying that the whites have become black, there's a you know, violent, criminal, destructive, gangster culture. And interestingly, he associated that with language. So he said that you know, if you're speaking a non-English form of language, then in some way your character is degraded. I mean, there are a whole host of assumptions in this which are... Um, are quite unpleasant, actually, if you start to unpick them, uh, with the idea that you know, people speaking a, a kind of non-typical form of English uh, are infested with a, a, a sort of virus from a different culture, not a, not a native um, English culture. Uh, so um, you know, I, I think that this feeds into the anxiety people have about um, language and different languages spoken the fact that languages change as well and that the changes might kind of correspond to differences in society. Um, of course, if you, as we know, you know looking at, at languages, looking at the history of languages, all languages change all the time. That's one of the certain facts about human language, that it doesn't stay stable. All spoken language is constantly changing from generation to generation to generation. Uh, otherwise, we'd all still be speaking Old English or Proto-Indo-European or Proto-World. Um, but in fact, you know, languages are changing all the time. Uh, some of the other wider anxieties I was talking about, um, uh, people feeling a foreigner in their home, home and actually people feeling that they won't be able to understand what's going on. So this was a, a Daily Mail um, headline after the um, census of uh, 2011 um, when they actually asked in the 2011 census about what languages people spoke and what their main language was. Um, and you have the, uh, the cartoon there at the time, there, someone imagining watching the news where you have to get subtitles in the English news um, because you know, actually you can't understand the languages spoken in your own culture. Um, all these fears are, <coughs> I think, misplaced. If you look at the census findings, you can actually um, see that much more clearly. Um, this is a language map of the, of the UK. Uh, so it's, um, in order to fit it on, it's very uh, small. Uh, but the, uh, the darker the colour is, uh, more people are, a uh, higher percentage of, of the population is um, English speakers. Uh, and so you get to some areas where you have lighter, where it's only 75% of, of the uh, area are um, English speakers. I couldn't include the um, breakdown for London, but in London there are some areas where 25% um, you know, of the population speak as their main language, uh, a language uh, which is not English. But what the um, census also showed is that these people who spoke a different language than English as their main language, the vast majority of them also spoke English. So people don't just speak one language, they speak um, <coughs> more than one language, English and a different language. So um, just, you know, the findings in brief, 92.3% of the population of England and Wales use English or Welsh as their main language. Um, uh, in all in London, it's about 77.9% of the population use English as their main language. Um, but of those uh, 4.2 million people who use a different language, it's only a tiny proportion of them, 1.3%, who are unable to speak English as well. Um, 
uh, unable to speak English well or even a smaller percentage uh, unable to speak English not at all. So these are the same um, figures broken down by area from the 2011 census. Um, <coughs> that's the general figure for um, uh, England and Wales. Uh, so that little tiny strip at the bottom, those are the people who can't speak English at all. Uh, the red are those who can't speak English well. Uh, <coughs> the rest are who use a different language as their main language, um, but uh, can speak English uh, either um, fairly well or very well. So in London you see there's a slightly larger uh, number of people who can't speak English at all, um, <coughs> but a uh, huge, uh, larger percentage you know, relative to the rest of the country of people who use another language as their main language. But the majority of those, the big majority of those people, uh, can also speak English well. So um, these anxieties about migration, the, you know, anxieties about language change, uh, are we the first people to ever feel like this? Is, is this uh, something new in the history of the world? Um, well, if we go back to Greek and Roman times, um, we find that we're not. That actually, you know, in ancient uh, uh, days, there are also Farages and, and Starkers as well. Um, they tend to wear different coats. They didn't wear that funny coat. They wore togas and things like that. So this is one of them. Uh, Xenophon um, talking about Athens in the 5th century BCE. Um, and he says the Athenians you know, listen to all sorts of different dialects. They take something from other places. They mix up all their languages um, and you know, mix up their dress and everything. They're kind of diluting their purity. Exactly the same thing from, from Cicero, um, looking very fetching here in this uh, wraparound toga. Um, and he says, yeah, in the old days, practically everyone spoke correctly, um, unless they had lived outside Rome or they would had some impurities of their home environment. But now, uh, in time, things have gone worse. Um, just as in Athens, so in Rome, uh, lots of debased speakers have come from elsewhere, have come into Rome, and the language has deteriorated. Uh, it's no longer pure, it's no longer correct, it's no longer good Latin. Uh, you get even um, from the uh, next century, uh, the poet Juvenal, I'm not going to read all this out, but you know, he has satires about current life in Rome in the um, first century after Christ. Um, and he's very critical of, of Greeks coming in, um, bringing their language customs. You know, the place is crawling with Greeks. Uh, everything is Greek. You know, the pure Roman past seems to be being debased. Uh, now, yeah, <clears throat> do we have ancient census findings? Were they, you know, did they have similar migration issues to us? I mean, were there uh, similar numbers of people migrating into the city of Athens and Rome? Um, can we tell? Well, it's much more difficult to find because they didn't have you know, a, a census um, every 10 years. I mean, you all know the Bible story of um, uh, <coughs> Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem to be uh, counted by Caesar Augustus in, in their census. Uh, but that, if it actually happened, uh, was a very unusual event in the ancient world. Uh, and we certainly don't have these recorded census findings. We know that the population of Rome um, in the first century BC increased massively. So it increased from 100,000 to uh, a million, thereabouts. Um, and because of much higher mortality rates, um, in order to keep that sort of population growth, there must have been a vast amount of, of migration into Rome. Uh, we know a bit more from the town of Herculaneum, a uh, town which was um, covered after the uh, eruption of Vesuvius, uh, where we have better um, records of, of who actually lived in that town at that time. Um, it suggests that 40% of the city were slaves and 20% ex-slaves. Now, slaves, of course, are um, yeah, migrants. Uh, they don't, some of them are um, um, probably born into slavery, but a lot of them at this time would have also been um, captured into slavery and taken into slavery from different areas. So they're unwilling migrants, but they're still migrants. 
Um, but you know, if you think of this city um, with 60% uh, of the population, not free population, but um, either born into slavery um, uh, or uh, captured into slavery, that's a huge number of, of uh, incomers into the town. Uh, and it seems, I mean, in Herculaneum, they estimate that there was about a 5% um, annual migration rate into the town of Herculaneum. Uh, if you think, do you know what the highest migration rate uh, into the UK has been in the last 20, 30 years? About 0.5% per year. That's about the highest recorded. So this is 10 times bigger, 5%. So you know, it's likely that there's much, much higher level of, of migration and population movement. Um, um, and it's been estimated that at the end of the um, first century before Christ, uh, around 40% of the population of Italy uh, lived somewhere different from where they were born. Uh, we can't trace exactly where the population movements come from, but there was a huge amount of population movement um, in ancient um, Italy. So we know that the ancient you know, Romans and Greeks were, were worried about migration. They were worried about you know, the effect on language. Uh, we know that there was quite a lot of migration. So what did happen? You know, what was the effect on, on language? Okay. Did these um, migrants, uh, as is feared nowadays, actually swamp the cities of Rome and Greece? Did they mean that Latin was no longer spoken? Uh, well, a, a kind of um, spoiler alert, uh, Latin did survive. Latin carried on being spoken, uh, and Latin actually carried on to be the language is, which we now know as uh, Italian, French, uh, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, Romanian also. These are all the continuations of Latin. Latin is a change over time, over, the, over 2,000 years. Uh, as it's spoken and passed down from generation to generation, it changes so much that it becomes a different languages. But these languages are obviously identifiable. If you know Latin and if you know Italian, they are the same language. They've just changed over time. So firstly, I'm, I'm going to now divide up looking at two different migrant groups and seeing what, what effect they had on language. And firstly, I'm going to look at, at Greeks, I mean, how the um, Greek migrants into Italy, how they changed the language and what long-term effect they had on the language. Uh, as I've already given the game away, they didn't, everyone didn't end up speaking Greek. They carried on speaking Latin. But Greek did have a long-term influence on the Latin language. Now, the Greeks first um, uh, arrived in Italy uh, in the first half of the first millennium BC, that's sort of 900, 800, 700 BC. Uh, you might be able to see on, on this map all the little red dots are Greek colonies. Um, and so the Greeks from uh, <coughs> Greece, they moved uh, westwards, they founded colonies all uh, around southern Italy and Sicily, uh, also in southern France, even in Spain, a uh, huge uh, amount of, of early Greek colonialization in these areas. Uh, you can see more detail, the map of southern Italy. Uh, these areas uh, of southern Italy all ended up speaking Greek <coughs> after the influx of, of Greek migrants, uh, Greek colonists. And actually it's because of them that some of the <coughs> finest bits of Greek artwork Greek artwork we have surviving are found in the south of Italy and Sicily. Um, <clears throat> one of my favourite um, pictures is, is this one of uh, a Greek bronze which was found in the sea <coughs> of Calabria. There it looks just like he's, he's um, you know, just come out of swimming, but there's a <coughs> man in these fantastic 1970s swimming trunks. Uh, it just found <coughs> um, these are the Riace bronzes. You can now see them in, in um, Reggio Calabria, uh, fantastic, beautiful works of, of ancient Greek <coughs> sculpture uh, there from southern Italy. Some of the biggest Greek theatres are from south of Italy and Sicily. So this is from um, Syracuse in Sicily, enormous Greek theatre. Uh, some of the best preserved Greek temples are from south Italy. This is from 
Paestum, just south of Naples, uh, and uh, amazing works of Greek art. This is um, also from Paestum. It's an interior of a Greek-painted um, tomb. Uh, just fantastic. I love this. It looks like someone's just you know, kind of gone swimming in the afternoon. There he is jumping off his different little diving board into his swimming um, swimming pool. And that, you know, <clears throat> from the same tomb, uh, people importing um, Greek culture, uh, wine came with the Greeks, the idea of, of feasting, of, of enjoying yourself. A lot of um, Roman culture also came from the Greeks. So what effects did this have on the, on the Latin language? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm now going to show you some bits of Latin. And uh, I apologize for this. You don't have to translate the Latin. It's just here. I'll become clear what I'm doing with the Latin in a bit. Um, but this is a poem of, of Catullus, a um, um, famous Latin poet, um, love poet. This is the, the translation by Sir Richard Burton, um, which is in this fantastic kind of archaic language, eek, she defies threatening Adrian Shaw, um, this very, very um, kind of convoluted Victorian translation. But it probably, it might have sounded quite similar to that, to a Roman reader. If we look at the Catullus poem and actually see how much Greek is there in that, we can do it just by um, colouring it in. So all the red-coloured words <coughs> are Greek words, which are um, borrowed into Latin. A lot of these are place names, uh, but not all of them are place names. Um, some of them have Greek endings, so they're taking over Greek grammar. Uh, some of them have special Greek sounds, which you don't have in, in Latin. So sounds such as the R-H or the, <coughs> the actual, what's spelt with a Y is a U sound, which wasn't um, originally in Latin. Um, and then in blue, these are things which are, are Latin, but actually they're Latin written in kind of Greek syntax. So they've taken the Greek grammatical constructions um, and imported that into Latin. So this is um, an example of the of kind of Latin high poetry, Latin artistic poetry, is shot through with references to Greek. I mean, with Greek words, with Greek constructions, Greek phrases, uh, often echoing Greek poetry itself. Um, and that, you know, that shows the influence of, of, uh, of the Greek language on the high art of, um, of, of the Romans. Uh, it also, Greek had a huge effect on um, Latin uh, technical vocabularies. So the language of, of uh, medicine, for example, or the language of, of um, <coughs> uh, grammar, how you talk about grammar, or the language of architecture, all of these are built very much with using Greek vocabulary. And so Greek had a huge um, influence on Latin, um, and actually an influence in kind of enriching the Latin language to give it a bigger vocabulary. And this is how we have in, in modern English, we actually have a number of Greek words which are, we use in everyday English, which have come into us via Latin and via French. So here are just some, some words in Greek, uh, you don't need to read them. But these words got borrowed by the Romans into Latin. <coughs> and uh, now some of them now, now, now might begin to look familiar. So musicare, which meant something to do with the muses in ancient Greek. Um, in Latin, uh, it becomes uh, associated with art and particularly music. Um, problema in Greek means an impediment or perhaps an actual technical problem in mathematics, that gets borrowed into Latin. Uh, chirurgia in Greek means something you do with your hands. In Latin, that come, gets borrowed into medical, of uh, actual surgery, which you do in your hands, uh, with your hands. Uh, these words then get borrowed um, from Latin into French, or actually as Latin changes into French, some of them survive in French, um, and then from French, they get borrowed into English. Uh, so a lot of our English vocabulary, something like pain, feel, seems a very basic word in English, a, a word which we couldn't do without. But it actually is borrowed from a French word, meaning um, uh, which comes from a Latin word, which means something more like penalty. Uh, uh, 
so it was originally a legal term, a fixed penalty for something, and then it changed its meaning to mean pain. Uh, so this actually has its roots in the Greeks. Uh, so it's the Greeks word was borrowed into Latin, which then transforms into French and then borrows into English again. So um, lots more of the English vocabulary like this is actually comes from Greek than you might imagine. So that's uh, the effect Greek had on, on the kind of um, educated Latin, I suppose, the Latin of, of artistic endeavor, uh, the Latin of technical writings, the Latin of science. Uh, Greek also had effects on the um, everyday Latin. Uh, and here, you know, we can find out a bit from the everyday Latin from some uh, inscriptions and paintings from places like Pompeii. Uh, in Pompeii, they survive in much greater uh, numbers. This is a fantastic little cartoon strip um, from a tavern in Pompeii. If you went to the Pompeii exhibition in London a couple of years ago, you might have seen it. It was on display there. Uh, it's actually a kind of run of uh, the real thing. I've just put them in a, a square box like this, but this is kind of scene one, two, three, four. So it really is like a, a cartoon strip of four different scenes. And it's all what you do in the pub. It's kind of tavern scenes. It's from the wall of an ancient tavern. Uh, firstly, there's someone who you know, greets and, and kisses someone else. Uh, then they're ordering drinks here. Uh, then they're playing at dice and they start quarrelling at dice, uh, and then as they're quarrelling, uh, the innkeeper actually pushes them outside. Uh, what's nice about this is that you've got little, uh, almost like speech bubbles, uh, written above these characters. You've got bits of Latin which reveal what they're saying. Uh, so we have some, you know, from this sort of evidence, we have some idea of what was really being um, said in the everyday on the speech, on the street in um, ancient Roman towns. Because normally you have to remember that most people uh, were not literate and most people were not able to write. Uh, only about 10%, they reckon, of the, of the population would have been literate and educated and able to write. But here we have a, kind of, a, a glimpse of what's going on in the underclass. Uh, now, interesting about these people is when they're um, this everyday conversation, they're also using Greek words. So they're also, they're not just at the high art level, the, the Romans are borrowing Greek words, they're also borrowing Greek words at the everyday spoken level. So here when they're throwing um, the dice, one of them says, uh, I'm out, and the other one says, that's not a three, that's a two, that's a juice, as we might say, uh, when you're throwing, throwing dice, that's a, um, a, a score of two, a roll of two. And actually for the word for two, for a roll of two on, on dice, he uses a Greek word there. So that kind of shows the infiltration of Greek into the everyday um, language. And we can also see the infiltration of Greek um, in the, um, what happened to uh, Latin as it gets transformed over time into these other languages, French, Italian, Spanish, etc., um, and we can see that many of the basic words we have in, in um, French, Italian, Spanish vocabulary, words for things like leg, arm, shoulder, speak, and each even, all of these are actually borrowings from Greek. Uh, so <coughs> the French word for leg, jambe, and the Italian word for leg, gamba, um, they're not the classical Latin word for leg, which was cruce, they're actually borrowed from the Greek word, which is originally referred to a horse's leg, a campter, a twisted uh, leg. And then that got, um, in the spoken language, that took over as the word for leg. Um, the word for arm uh, comes from the Greek word brachium, uh, which refers to this upper bit of your arm here. Uh, the word for speak in Italian and French, parler, um, comes from parabola. You know, Jesus talks in parables. Well, in the Bible, these are um, used as, you know, um, the parables Jesus talks in. That's the same word which gives us uh, the French uh, parler to speak, uh, as in a, a tale or a story, and hence the word for um, to tell a story just becomes to speak. Uh, so the Greek influence on Latin was huge, and it still survives in the modern Romance languages. Uh, and so uh, they didn't end up speaking Greek, 
Uh, but Greek did have a, a major influence on Latin. Now, is that a good influence or a bad influence? Well, I mean, it would be quite difficult to communicate if we didn't have words for legs, arms, and shoulders, um, if we were French or Italian, or even in English, if we didn't have a word like problem or music, yeah, it would be very difficult. We, you know, these have kind of enriched our vocabulary and enriched our language. Uh, so that's the story of what happened um, with one uh, group of migrants, the Greek migrants, and these are the kind of cultural top dogs, if you like. You know, the Greeks were um, the you know, most cultured people of the ancient Mediterranean, most advanced in art and literature, and so they had a huge influence on the Romans. Uh, but there are lots of other migrants into Rome, lots of other people who moved into Italy um, who were not speaking Greek, but were speaking other languages. Now, if we look at the um, map of Italy around um, 400 BCE, you can see that Latin was at that time uh, not the major language or the only language spoken in Italy. It was only spoken in a tiny area out around Rome. Uh, and the rest of the peninsula of Italy <coughs> was covered in a host of different languages spoken there. So that's a language map, I mean, quite a, a crude language map, but just shows all the different languages that used to be spoken in Italy. Uh, now, some of these languages, uh, we know something about the peoples who spoke them. Uh, so Etruscan um, up here, uh, the Etruscans um, left a host of, of artworks, of um, material culture surviving. Uh, you might have seen some um, of these in, in museums in Rome. Uh, sometimes they go on, on traveling exhibitions, very fine uh, sculpture work. This is actually made out of terracotta. This is like a coffin made out of terracotta. Um, you see the Etruscans uh, adopted also the Greek habit of kind of dining while, while reclining. Uh, but whereas the Greeks had two men normally on the couch, the Etruscans thought it would be more fun to have a man and a woman on a couch when they're downing, dining. So, you know, they're, they're kind of adopting and adapting um, Greek, uh, uh, Greek habits and Greek culture. Uh, other peoples of Italy um, uh, borrowed Greek institutions like theatres. So this is a theatre uh, from you know, the middle of southern um, Italy um, in the province of Molise, uh, which actually is associated with the people who spoke a language called, called Oscan another ancient language of Italy. Uh, now, um, all these people adopted Greek um, habits. One of them was writing. Uh, so our alphabet, the Latin alphabet, comes from the Greeks, but via the Etruscans. And this is actually what the ancient um, Romans realized this. Um, so they, um, yeah, they said the Latin letters yeah, are like the old Greek letters. Um, and they came into different people um, into Italy. So the Etrurians, that's another word for the Etruscans. Uh, and so these people had writing. Um, and so we can actually read their languages. We know that these languages uh, are different from Latin. Um, some of them are related to Latin. Uh, some of them are not related to Latin at all. Uh, so uh, Etruscan um, is a language which doesn't seem to be related to any other language um, which we know about uh, any other language spoken, ancient or modern. Uh, it's very difficult to find anything to match Etruscan. Um, incidentally, that's a, a model liver. You might think, you know, why would you want a model liver? The Etruscans were very keen on, on um, kind of uh, soothsaying, fortune-telling. And one thing they used to do is when sacrificing animals, they would take out the entrails and you might have seen this in asterisks or whatever, they would read the entrails, they would read the liver. Uh, how did you learn to read a liver? Well, you picked up your model liver, which has written on it, you know, if you have a spot here or a blot here, that refers to this god or that refers to that god. Uh, so this is a, an incredible kind of teaching model so that you know, you know uh, how to read your liver. Um, so um, very strange object from the ancient world. Um, now, some of these um, languages, all of these languages were spoken at the same time as Latin, and sometimes we find <coughs> people actually setting up uh, monuments to themselves using both Latin and another language. So here, like in the modern world, 
where we found in the census that people were able to speak English and their um, own language. So in the ancient world, people seem to have been able to speak Latin and one of these other languages. So, so this chap, uh, um, whose name is Lucius Cafatius, son of Lucius, um, he is actually an entrails inspector. So he's one of those people who was using uh, livers uh, and you know, looking at, at um, telling the fortune through looking at, uh, at um, blemishes on entrails. He also, at the same time, he um, does lightning um, in the conductors. No, um, sorry, I've misspelled lightning there. Um, uh, looking at the patterns made by lightning in the sky and telling the, um, the future from that. Uh, so he is someone who seems to have used both languages, both Latin and Etruscan. Uh, now, what happened to all these languages? Well, uh, here's, here's, you know, those are just the languages of Italy. Um, here we look wider. There are also a whole patchwork of languages in southern France and southern Spain. Um, that's really in the, um, around 400 BCE. We only have writing around the Mediterranean. Uh, we don't yet have writing in, in, the, um, in Great Britain or Northern Europe. So we don't really know what the people were speaking um, in those areas. Uh, but where we get um, writing, we can actually tell all these different languages were being spoken. Uh, and so this is what the Romans were worried about with all the people coming into Rome. Uh, all these other people coming into Rome not speaking Latin, speaking other languages. Uh, well, what happened to all these other languages? Well, let's cycle forward um, 800 years. Where are they? They've all gone. Yeah. So 800 years later, yeah, all this area, Latin is spoken. And that's you know, how we actually have French ending up in this area and um, Spanish here, and Portuguese here. Uh, the people who kind of um, hold out against Latin are the, the Basque speakers of, of northern Spain and southern France, um, who seem to have, you know, uh, be some of the few people in Western Europe, well, the, the only people in that area of Western Europe, who didn't actually succumb to speaking Latin. Now, um, so ancient people were worried about the effect of, of migrants coming in uh, speaking different languages, debasing their, uh, their pure Latin. But they needn't have worried. You know, we look back and we can say, well, you shouldn't have worried because uh, actually, in the end, uh, Latin is what wins out. And it's probably through that whole process of bilingualism, of people speaking two languages, so like our Etruscan entrails inspector, uh, someone who um, speaks both Latin and his native language, and then his children perhaps speak both Latin and his native language, but not the native language so well. And so eventually, over generations, the native language dies out and Latin wins out. Um, so there was a great kind of extinction of languages um, in Europe in, during the Roman Empire with the advance of these languages such as Greek and Latin. Uh, now, in the modern day, Coming back to the modern day, uh, it's actually nowadays we're looking at another great extinction of languages. Um, so this is a, a very interesting website if you're interested, uh, endangeredlanguages.com. Uh, this you can track any part of the world and see whether languages are um, at risk, endangered, severely endangered, dormant. Um, so uh, this little black dot in the middle of England, I was thinking, what is this dormant language <coughs> here? Which they, so, <coughs> and actually they're talking about Poldari, which is, do you know, anyone know what Poldari is? Um, anyone remember that um, Round the Horn show? Oh, Mr. Horn, here you come trolling along with your jolly old eek. That kind of old theatre language people used to speak, that's called Poldari. So... <coughs> um, uh, and, yeah, that isn't actually much used uh, nowadays. But, you, you know, you can hear recordings of Poldari. So some of these endangered languages are, are you know, perhaps a little, you know, whether you really think of them as actually uh, being proper languages or properly spoken. But others, you know, here is Cornish, here is Welsh, here is Scots Gaelic. Uh, I think Manx uh, is under here somewhere. 
um, Irish, uh, and then you know all over Europe there are you know languages like Corsican here, um, other languages which are at risk of dying out. And you know, talking about Welsh, we mentioned Welsh already. You can actually see the effect of of um, uh, <coughs> language change on Welsh by looking at the census. Um, in 2011, 19% uh, of, of the population of Wales were able to speak Welsh. That's slightly down from 2001, um, 10 years earlier, but it's hugely down from 100 years earlier. And 100 years ago, there were nearly a million people able to speak Welsh. Uh, now, only about 600,000 people are able to speak Welsh. Uh, what's more telling is that the people who can only speak Welsh. Uh, in 1911, there were nearly 200,000 people who only spoke Welsh. Um, by the time you get to 1991, there's no one left on the census who only speaks Welsh. Everyone who can speak Welsh can also speak English. Uh, and so that's uh, you know, the pattern that the monolingualism is, is dying out monolingual Welsh speakers are really, um, yeah. there may be some who exist, but you know, very, very few. But most of the Welsh speakers are also fluent in English. Uh, and that's uh, the same pattern we saw in the ancient world, that once you get this bilingualism, people speaking two languages, um, often the dominant language, the uh, culturally dominant language, is the one which will win out. Uh, so a lot of the... Um, findings from the last census about languages um, show that you know, even though people are speaking other languages than English, um, most of them are able to speak English as well. And the kind of prognosis for English in the long run is fairly good. English is a culturally dominant language, uh, particularly because of the United States. It looks very likely that people will carry on speaking English even if they speak other languages. And one thing that is um, very noticeable if you go um, abroad uh, to Europe, is the dominance of English in continental Europe as well. So you know, this is a, um, a sign from an airport. Anyone know which airport this comes from? Schiphol. Yes, uh, so Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. There's one word of Dutch in this whole sign. Yeah. Everything else is an English word. Yeah. Um, most of, if you know uh, Holland, if you've been to Holland, if you're married to a Dutch woman like me, um, you will know that most of the uh, population of Dutch are able to get by in English or even better. Um, I've been to a wedding in Holland, not my own I should say, where the entire wedding was conducted in English apart from the single word uh, I do, which was said in Dutch. Everything else was in English. Uh, if you're a student, you can go um, to a university in Holland and you can be taught entirely in English. You can submit all your work in English. Uh, so, uh, in many ways, if you're an English speaker and a non-Dutch speaker going to Holland, you don't really need to learn to speak Dutch. You can actually get by very well with English. So, the real story about you know, language change and, and language dominance is actually the story about English taking over other languages. I think although we might uh, be worried about hearing other languages spoken as we you know, move into more of a multicultural world, um, it's very unlikely that English, that we need to worry about the future of English because English will survive. So thank you very much. your chart of very good speakers of English, quite good speakers, yeah. and poor speakers of English. Does, do the poor speakers of English include any English people, or was it all those born elsewhere? 
they only asked that question of people who said their main language was not English. Um, so then they asked them, do you speak um, English very well? Uh, the interesting one was the number of people who said they speak Welsh quite well or can get by in Welsh, um, which actually, the, it's kind of, if you read the reports on census, they don't quite believe that everyone who ticked the box saying, yes, I know Welsh, who lived in Wales, actually did know much Welsh. Uh, and even more so in Northern Ireland, the number of people who said that they knew Irish were, um, doesn't seem to correspond to the number of people who really you know, have a passing, uh, uh, I mean, a, a workable knowledge of, of Irish. Uh, I mean, I suppose the question um, about, you know, it's like the, um, the David Starkey comment in a way that, you know, he says that, well, the young people are not speaking good English anymore. You know, they've been corrupted. And I think to someone, yeah, well, my age um, uh, and above, you know, it is worrying when you hear people say uh, things that, you know, you were taught at school, you must never, never say that, you know, that, that's completely wrong. How, how can they, you know, use the English language like that? And, you know, in a way we're, we're holding back the tide because um, we can't change it. Language changes. Uh, it might change in, in good ways. There are some nice things about language change. It might change in ways that you think, um, well, you know, I, I think that just doesn't make sense to me. You know, there was a good distinction between uninterested and disinterested, which is very useful, but yeah, now people don't use it. And, um, uh, <clears throat> but you know, languages have always changed, and uh, we, can, we can kind of regret uh, the passing, but you know, we're not going to change it, I'm afraid. Um, in, in London, you know, there are a lot of influences, uh, Jamaican patois and mm. Jewish words in Cockney, Cockney language. Um, is there any sign that uh, Eastern European languages are influencing young people? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know. Um, I haven't seen any studies whereby people have been taking over... Um, yeah, and you do see these reports of you know the um, latest slang words and things, but I haven't seen any any Eastern European ones. But uh, something to look out for. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I I'm, I am Dutch, mm -hmm. and my two cousins are here learning English. Um, that's why I found the last um, the last example a very interesting example, and. I have a lot of experience from, from the schools in the Netherlands, mm. and specifically the universities, like you said, mm. that they do a lot of things in English. Um, there's a great push at the moment to try and keep Dutch above English mm. as the lingua franca. To what degree do you think they are fighting a losing battle, especially since there are not many people learning Dutch as opposed to, for example, mm. Spanish or French or German? Mm. Mm. Um, I think the, the fact that um, there's a written form of Dutch makes a huge difference. I think many of these um, <coughs> languages I've talked about in the past, which died in the advent of Latin, there is some writing in them, but most of the people you know, never learnt to write. And um, so there wasn't really that kind of prestige in the language. But you know, with a written form of Dutch, you know, learning to read the written form of Dutch, um, I think that kind of keeps the, well, in the jargon, the ethno-linguistic vitality of Dutch, which is, you know, what sociolinguists say, you know, that actually if there's a, a, a written form and if there's a literature which people are interested in using and if there are, you know, if people are still going to eat uh, croquetta and raw herring and things like that, you know, then they'll still want to, to speak Dutch to do it. So it kind of, there are a number of factors to, to keep language alive. Um, and I think, you know, that it will carry on. Whether that will keep Dutch alive for the next 500 years, I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. My question ties in with that, basically. Mm. That now, with the rash of nationalism all over Europe, practically, mm. you think that that will influence the flow and exchanges of languages and the development? Well, um, I think 
I don't see many people actually, well, apart from the British, uh, trying to be like the Basque and kind of cut themselves off from everything else that's happening and only speaking their own language and, and not talking to anyone else. Uh, I mean, I think most people, uh, even with nationalist pride, they still want some of the good things of you know, trade with other places. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going far beyond my brief. I'm a linguist here. I mean, but I think, um, yeah, I think that... that yeah, societies will carry on being open societies because people are too used to that now. And I don't see anyone uh, actually kind of closing down on uh, like watching American films or you know, watching American TV series. Uh, so, I don't know. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. <laughs> okay, my question is about um, imposition of language. Mm. You said the Romans didn't need to worry. It was going, Latin was going to survive. Mm. You've talked mainly about osmosis of language. What about imposition by conquerors and colonization? And eradication of language as a consequence? Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't talk about that because, um, in, I mean, that is, there is a, um, yeah. A black history, um, I mean, in, in colonialism, many cases of colonialism, where people were actually punished for not speaking the conqueror's language. You know, that they had to learn, you know, or, or die. Um, I think in the, in the modern world, we're not in, in that um, situation yet. And in the ancient world, um, the Romans don't seem to have been particularly concerned to have a language policy like that. Uh, so, interestingly, most people who um, you know, learnt Latin uh, did so for the advantages of trade, of, um, you know, of getting, you know, fighting in the Roman army, for example, access to the Roman uh, legal system. So, you know, these are the things, and, and probably religion, also probably Christianity, these are the things which really encourage the kind of switch of language in the ancient world. And I think this is you know, similar, I mean, that's similar to the last question, you know, similar to the um, motivations for people switching languages and language change in the modern world. Uh, so I think we're, we're fortunately not at the moment in, in an area where people have to, you know, um, uh, kind of pass a, I mean, it, it's different in some countries in Europe. In, in Holland, interestingly, you know, they do have a, a citizenship test, I think, in, in where you have to speak Dutch. Uh, but you know, in other countries, you know, you can become a citizen without having to speak. In the U.S., you know, there's big debate, but you don't actually have to speak English to become a U.S. citizen. So, um, you know, that is another side of the coin. But that's why I didn't talk about it. Um, <clears throat> well, my question is about the the language Esperanto mm. that was. You know, to avoid one language being what we've talked about, yeah. dominant above others, this language was created, but if I'm not mistaken, it was kind of a failure. So, well, at least not many people speak it that I know. So what do you think was the, the re main reasons why it was a big failure when no one speaks it today? Yeah, um, I think you still can go to Esperanto ca camps. It's quite common in some parts of... Eastern Europe. I mean, this is you know, a, an invented kind of easy language which was meant to be aid co um, communication. Uh, I think it's interesting to compare Esperanto with, with modern Hebrew because uh, modern Hebrew is also a language which has um, developed you know, from ancient Hebrew. Modern Hebrew isn't the direct continuation of ancient Hebrew. People stopped speaking um, Hebrew in ancient times and then it was revived um, with the, um, and particularly with the movement to Israel. Now, with movement to Israel, you have all the apparatus of a state. You know, you need to have a, you know, a kind of, you have lots of different people coming together. And Hebrew is a, you know, very um, uh, powerful. Uh, uh, well, people have powerful motivation for learning it in order to fit in, in order to actually start a new life in Israel. Um, Esperanto, you know. Well, you know, okay, it's fun to learn, but, you know, why would you bother, really? You know, you're not actually going to get... No one's going to pay you more. 
Yeah. No one where, where you move, people aren't going to demand you learn Esperanto. Uh, there's no great literature in Esperanto. Ah, I'm sorry, I, I offend anyone who, who knows Esperanto and the fantastic Esperanto poetry. But, you know, um, uh, there, there's not enough kind of um, motivation for people to learn it, so I think that's why. You speak about these changes for like the Greek and Roman languages happening mm. over a matter of generations yeah. and the, the evolution into modern European languages happening over a matter of centuries. Do you believe the influence of things like technology and modern media and social media on our interactions with the wider world are influencing our language at a more accelerated rate? Um, I th it goes back to what I was saying about writing. Um, now... Uh, well, I suppose it's slightly different with people using emojis now. But with um, greater literacy, I, the evidence seems to be that that actually slows down language change. Uh, because rather than just having spoken form of language, people actually have a written form of language which they can refer back to, um, and which they're taught in school and which becomes a codified. So you know, even though the young you know, may pronounce TH as F, uh, which, yeah, I don't particularly like. You know, they'll still write it as TH. And, you know, and some of them will, you know, most of the young, you know, when they're having their Cambridge interviews, even though they say, um, uh, you know, I think, uh, in their interview they'll say, I think, you know, very carefully. So there is that pressure, which is kind of retarding, I think, language change. Um, but you know, now that may change as, you know, as we become increasingly illiterate and just communicating with emojis. Um. <laughs> uh, hi. Uh, you, during your speech, you mainly uh, talked about so Latin taking over a big uh, linguistic area, mm. which initially was plurilinguistic. But after the, the fall of the Roman Empire, we see new linguistic areas mm. appearing. So I assume that uh, Latin was more the administrative, official, religious a language and that another language continued maybe to exist and then they mixed after and that so it created maybe Spanish, <coughs> French, Italian. Um, yeah, I think um, even uh, uh, Spanish has a lot of, of loan words from Arabic, for example. I'll take the example of Spain, you know, you have Arabic um, conquest of southern Spain, uh, yeah, it really changes the, uh, the format of Spain. Uh, even though you've got some Arabic loan words in Spanish, you know, Spanish is still basically a Romance language. I mean, it hasn't actually made a, a huge uh, effect on the grammar of Spanish, for example, the influence of Arabic. Um, so, uh, I think that, you know, once... Um, the, the interesting thing about the Roman um, Empire is that that language change was really the big language change of the last 2,000 years. You know, despite the changing um, political systems uh, and other things, there wasn't a big language uh, shift in the same way in Europe um, until now, um, over the last uh, 2,000 years. And you know, that's very interesting that it, it, it's actually affected like that. And mm. I was wondering if today too, or in the future, very long-term future, we could see new languages emerging. Yeah, and I think um, that's certainly uh, another point which I was going to make, so thank you for bringing it up, that you know, we do see um, new languages emerging at the moment. Um, and you know, that's the other, the flip side of this coin of the um, kind of you know, little points of light going out. That there are new European languages actually being created. And again, Spain is, a, is an interesting example um, because, uh, I mean, Catalan here is uh, now recognised in a separate language from Spain. Um, they voted that recently that Galician, um, up here, uh, should be deemed a separate regional language. Uh, in the um, uh, um, Mallorca and Menorca, uh, they've just also um, passed legislation that they, everything has also to be translated into their own separate, what they're calling a separate language. I mean, we might call it just the dialect of Spanish. Uh, but actually they're saying, no, no, this is a, uh, this is a different Balearic language. Uh, so, you know, we can see, you know, the formation of, you know, maybe if we, if we go forward a thousand years, you'll actually have very, very different languages of, you know, in Spain here. 
So, you know, and also with um, uh, Jamaican patois, with uh, English spoken in Singapore, for example, these are, uh, you know, dialects of English, which are now virtually separate languages, because, you know, certainly, you know, sometimes when you hear recordings of Jamaican patois or Singaporean English, it's very, very difficult for an, uh, an English speaker from the UK to understand them. Okay. You make it clear that language anxiety over language change is almost universal over space yeah. and time. Should we seek to reassure the public that their anxieties are nothing special or that what they're experiencing isn't an unusual or extraordinary event that they're perceiving? Um, that's the purpose of this lecture, um, uh, reassuring the public. I mean, I think, um, uh, um, you yeah. uh, Anything we can do to educate more people that you know um, that actually change is not frightening, not just in language but in all other parts of of, um, of life, is quite good. Um, so I'll just uh, cut it, keep it at that. So thank you very much. <laughs>